Welcome back to Emmaism, a philosophy podcast for students of philosophy, because that really is what we all are, seekers of knowledge. Happy Friday, guys. It's finally time to philosophize. So today I'm going to be talking about the philosophy of love. Of course, you know, in the spirit of Valentine's Day. Basically, how this podcast is going to be laid out is that we're going to begin with like an overview of the different kinds of love, um, different philosophers' conceptions of love, and um, how these definitions and conceptions are especially useful today. And then obviously we're going to have to feature St. Valentine himself at the end, um, you know, when we round out our weekly philosophizing. So I don't know. We might have to switch with the order of these, but yeah, let's get into the philosophy of love. So love is something that hopefully we experience every day. Um, If not, I'm sorry, but I'm going to make a case that You do experience it every day, you know, whether it be love of a thing, love of a person, a project or something else, we're all touched by the phenomenon in some way or another. Um, So I was supposed to take a class this year called the um, problem of love, you know, had I stayed at Villanova, but alas, I chose to dive into the analytic tradition of philosophy. And so I wasn't able to take that class. That being said, I am a proponent of, you know, philosophizing about love and considering how practicing philosophy can impact the ways I love and perceive love. So historically, the philosophy of love has been something in the works since the ancient Greeks, really. You know, actually, it was Plato in his symposium that provides a, you know, starting conception of love and presents a pretty popular notion of what love really is. So the symposium, the symposium account of love is one that considers um, love as a series of elevations where like initial attraction is superseded by the, you know, intellectual and whole feeling of love. And then the intellectual whole feeling of love is not even the pinnacle because it's then surpassed by a theological and whole sense of love. So I guess like I said, intellectual and whole, but it's more of the theological and whole sense of love that is actually whole. But the theological sense is one that encapsulates a feeling of immateriality in the divine. But I'll get into that later. No worries. So Plato had this student, Aristotle. And Aristotle, he wrote of love, but he also wrote of friendship. And he also wrote of rhetoric. But what I'm going to talk about today is love. Though I do take a quote out of his rhetoric, his treatise on um, persuasion. But anyways, he's Aristotle is actually the guy with the famous saying of love being two bodies and one soul. He also said that to love something in itself is a manifestation of our love for what is good as such. Um, he held that those who love each other need each other in like that meta sense. Um, so I guess I'm I'm interested in hearing about what your thoughts are on that. I'd, I'd like to find a, like a few moments on Aristotle's philosophy of love, two bodies, one soul. Do you think that the modern conception of love and union is in this light? Probably not. But let's first look at the capabilities of men and women in ancient Greece versus today and how that can potentially map out onto Aristotle's philosophy of love and how we can think of the philosophy of love, you know, contemporarily. Um, In ancient Greece, women couldn't own land. We knew that. They could vote. We knew that. And they weren't regarded in the legal sense as citizens. Sure, they had souls, but if in ancient Greek, um, you know, Greece, arguably the birthplace of philosophy as we know it in the agora and the origin of, you know, thought surrounding nature of the soul and character of people, 
women were still not regarded as people to a certain degree. And, you know, in a place where philosophizing is taking place and, you know, there are general strides to look into the soul of man, um, there is still quite a difference between what man can achieve and what woman can achieve. So that definitely bleeds into the conception of what Aristotle's conception of love is as two bodies one soul but men in ancient greece they could do whatever they could you know own land vote the whole shebang so maybe the union of man and woman in ancient greece was two bodies and one considered soul you know but once the worldview shifted and the um philosophy of relationships became a little bit different there tended to be more of a focus on the individual and their own unique flourishing of the soul rather than one individual's flourishing the soul and the union of another body. Um, so then when the individualization and the movement to see woman as a separate person, you know, well, separate from her husband occurred, um, relationships and love move from Aristotle's definition of two bodies, one soul to two bodies and two souls that complement each other. Instead of one soul, it's like the unity of two fitting puzzle pieces. And that's usually how modern love is perceived today. So I'm pushing back a little bit on both of these philosophies and I'm just, I'm trying to have the best of both worlds. Though trying to have the best of both worlds in philosophy is often seen as meh by scholars. It's seen as, how oh, you're taking the easy way out. But I don't know. Let, let's think about it. I do see merit in recognizing the complementary and unique qualities of each individual person who is in love with the other. But... I also see the benefits of characterizing love as a single union and single soul of the two people. In a way, you can indeed have Aristotle's philosophy of love even when you recognize the individuality of each person. You can consider the soul being the immaterial part of each of us. So it only need be that our bodies and temporal manifestations of the soul be different then. You know, we could have similar, you know, two people could have the same soul, but because they are temporal and fallible, they can manifest, you know, the, the tendencies of the soul or whatever in two very different ways. If love is indeed one soul, two bodies, then it makes perfect sense that, you know, when you adopt this lens of looking at the soul, that's the way it should be. Um, two people who are meant to be together in, in love, you know, in love, they share a soul, but they have two different exercises of it, which makes it possible for two separate and unique people to exist and have their own experiences. That's why I think you can marry the ideas of two, like, you know, one soul and the individuality component of a loving relationship. So one more thing to cover about love before embarking on the philosophy, um, the philosophical heavy side of the podcast is um how love is innate to humans we cannot help but love furthermore it's in our nature to be loved and to love because of the kind of creature we are um last semester i took an anthropology class and so in anthropology i learned of this distinct idea that Humans raise their youth in a fundamentally different way than other species. We have longer development periods and, you know, uh, whatever that is called, the, cr- the critical time. And we require a lot of teaching and nurturing in order to be a competent adult that other adults want to be, you know, 
social with and form relationships with. So by design, we all require some level of, you know, love to get us through the first stages of our life. And it is only natural to continue the feeling of love in later stages of life and then do it, you know, give love to those around us. Um, We're loving beings and our hearts are drawn by love. St. Augustine says that we're driven by the tendency and weight of our heart, which spoiler alert, it's love. Um, Because we have a natural inclination to love, then we are quite concerned about normative statements that regard loving. How can we love rightly? What kinds of love ought to exist in the world? How must I exercise my feelings of love toward others so that they feel the same about me? You know, you get the gist. Okay, so now that we've deliberated that for a bit, I want to talk about the three natures of love. Eros, philia, and agape. These are Greek terms, and they're meant to solve some of the problems that, um, you know, questions concerning the nature of love bring up. They're also, you know, helping individuals understand which normative statements they ought to concern themselves with, which term of love can be used to describe different feelings or almost like subheaders to the one true love that we all can strive for. All right, so we can start with the three loves. The first one, eros. Eros is the passion and intense desire part of love. Um, But also, as per our Neoplatonist discussion last week, eros, as Plato considers, is the common desire that seeks transcendental beauty. Um, Moreover, it's the attraction quality of the individual that reminds the individual of the true beauty that exists in the world of forms. Um, You know, the world of forms is the immaterial realm. This would be heaven. So this is the passion for intense beauty that we see in the world that reminds us um, and are signs of the divine. The proponent of Neoplatonism holds that this kind of love, Eros, is not satisfied on earth and is only able to be satisfied in heaven, sadly upon death. Um, So Eros is toward ideal beauty and... um, reciprocity isn't crucial to this nature of love it's pretty much a one-way thing it's pretty much the desire for the thing that is beautiful and nothing more but i guess the more simple way to put it is that eros is um desiring in its core but it's also in a way more than desire because the love that is eros is a reflection of the part of the idea the person the object the thing that partakes in ideal beauty so then i guess more pointedly Eros is the reflection of the desire for that thing. That's why we'd call passion a sort of elevated desire. One example of Eros is the kind of feelings that are present when people just start a relationship. Like Eros would be the initial, oh wow, I love how he looks or talks or acts. Something pretty simple, but also reflects something beautiful that comes from the immaterial, comes from the world of forms. Um, So yeah. Then we have philia. Philia is the kind of love that is reciprocal. That's one of the conditions for it. We find philia in friendships. Philia is the kind of love that includes loyalty, appreciation, and the sharing of dispositions with another. Aristotle has elaborated on his certain conception of philia in his treatise called Rhetoric. He said that um, the nature of love is that philia is objective. It composes of the things that we seek in proper friendships, a whole friendship, ones that last forever, or not, um, but 
it's, you know, one that comprises of all important things one could want in a friendship. People who are understanding, people who are patient, people who share your beliefs, and um, those who have the capacity to have positive and impactful discourse with you. An important caveat for philia is that man must love himself so that he can love his friend as he loves himself. Self-love and this almost like egoistic foundation is an application of philia because it is a reflection of man's journey to virtue and effort toward acquiring the good and the true. But yeah, as I said before, reciprocity is a condition for philia, the nature of love. Um, And just to apply this one so that we can see it a little bit more like close to home, a philia love would obviously be a friendship or a parent-child relationship, a marriage relationship, or a boyfriend-girlfriend sort of relationship. There just must be the satisfaction of certain conditions like, you know, what I said before, reciprocity, loving himself as a friend and shared disposition. So, last but not least, the third nature of love is agape. Agape is the most whole of all the loves because it is the love of God for man and of man for God. It is also extended to mean the love of all of humanity within all of humanity. It is a perfect love and can be thought of as a unity of both philia and eros and a more deeper wholesome love. Yes, so it draws on elements of philia and eros, but it also doesn't include some of their caveats like desiring a thing for the thing itself or the condition of reciprocity. In fact, it doesn't even need reciprocity and you don't really desire for the, the thing for the thing itself in a whole feeling, the whole love of agape. St. Augustine wrote of agape a bunch in his work and that goes to my point that it's, it's almost, it's hard to understand agape without a Catholic or even more broadly, a theological sense of what is true. From the Catholic perspective, God loves us so much, and his love is a perfect and whole love that is forgiving and merciful. We on earth, as subjects of God, ought to live out his conception of what is true, what is good, and enjoy what is beautiful. It, it kind of makes sense that agape, God's love for us, is the, mole, is, you know, the most whole nature of love. I mean, it is after all, um, from this Catholic and theological perspective, um, that you know god the perfect and all-loving being loves us his creation that's agape for you um so all of these natures of love can be brought together to determine framework that govern how we ought to act how we ought to love comes from our conception of the good and the true and the beautiful i'm someone who genuinely thinks that these three things the true the good and the beautiful are all objective so there's a pretty set standard for how we ought to live and love. Live, love, laugh. No, I'm just kidding. Um, that's so basic. But objectivism exists for a reason. And, you know, I think these things are very objective. Uh, and, like, even if the full exercise of the suggestions from the objective sense of love results in something seemingly radical, just a, like a very radical proposal to you, it's okay and it's justifiable. We ought to live in a certain way, and um, you know that for sure is justifiable on an objective basis because the framework that determines how we ought to act ought to be demanding. That's how you wind up with conformity and you know these belief systems. We need something that is almost a radical proposal to put us on the path towards virtue. Anyways, 
I just wanted to end the podcast on a sweet and lovely note. So let's talk about St. Valentine. Um, we all know Valentine's Day, the 14th, but um, St. Valentine, he's the patron saint of lovers, among other things, including beekeepers. That was one of the things that stuck out to me the most. And his feast day is coming up on Monday, um, February 14th, obviously, Valentine's Day. Um, he's a martyr, and his feast day has important, you know, significance to lovers because um, of a few legends from his life. According to the legend, um, St. Valentine signed a letter to the daughter of the man who put him in jail, um, who he also healed from blindness, and he signed the letter, quote-unquote, from your Valentine. That explains a lot. Um, And also, it is also said that St. Valentine defied the emperor um, orders multiple times and secretly married couples in order to spare certain people from going to war and probably dying so he saved a lot of lives so incredible man all in all he was a man for love and he was in the business of making the conditions for love to flourish and you know what more can you ask from a guy right (laughs) um okay talking about normative statements on this valentine's day we ought to think of saint valentine and his work to keep love in the air even in times of crisis that's all i have for today's emmaism um you know thanks for listening and until next time keep searching for the truth